as we continue to love you, trust you, and be renewed by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. perfect chocolate chip cookie. I want you to think about the best chocolate chip cookie. Maybe, like for you, maybe it's like big chunks of dark chocolate. Maybe like my wonderful bride, you like milk chocolate. Uh, there's kind of no wrong answers here, unless, of course, your perfect chocolate chip cookie has walnuts, and then you're just, seriously, get up out of here, all right? You clearly have not had a good chocolate chip cookie. Really? Walnuts? Oh, Lori. Thank goodness. There's so many wonderful things about you. <laughs> the perfect chocolate chip cookie, right? Uh, for me, it's, it's big chunks of dark chocolate, and, uh, and it's finished with like some really a little bit this morning with the that I think that I, I hope will help us dive into some discussions and some thoughts about our faith. Because after all, a, a matured faith in Christ is, has a little bit at least to do or a little bit in common with a perfect chocolate chip cookie. The, the perfect chocolate chip cookie, at least in my estimation, it isn't about one special ingredient that you got right that the others got wrong. The perfect chocolate chip cookie is, is not about an order of operations in terms of just simply doing the steps correctly. The perfect chocolate chip cookie is not simply about how long it's cooked or at what temperature or where it's enjoyed or the memory that you have when you enjoyed it. All of those things factor in, certainly. A perfect cookie, and in this way, a perfectly matured faith, have some things in common in that both of these things, a hundred or more seemingly disconnected details that are all working together in harmony. And when all of these perfectly attended to details work together in harmony, what comes out on the other side is the perfect cookie or the perfectly matured faith. Today we begin a six-week series through the book of James. Uh, James being the brother of Jesus, who grew up with him, obviously, being his brother, and then was one of the twelve disciples. He gives us some really unique and I think important and valuable, obviously it's in scripture, so it's very important and valuable, but incredibly unique insight into what it is to have a mature and enduring faith. And I think some of that comes 
because he not only walked with Jesus for those three years of that incredible ministry of Christ, but he had lived with him for the 30-ish years prior. He watched Jesus grow up. He saw who this Jesus was and what the Son of God thought about and acted like. He had not only walked with him in ministry, but lived with him. And then thereabouts 10-ish years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, James sits down and pens this letter for Jewish Christians living all throughout the land. With 10 years of perspective and a whole lifetime lived prior to that, with the person of Jesus, not merely the idea of Jesus or the beliefs about Jesus, but with the actual Jesus. Some 10 years-ish pass, and James sits down, and this is what he has to say to us about what it is to live this Christian life. So if you're not there yet, go there with me. James chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 15 verses as we get started. Beginning, well, skip verse 1, but beginning in verse 2, for the sake of time. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need them, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, for when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers, and the little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. Verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted, don't say God's tempting me. God has never tempted to do wrong. And he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own evil desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Whew. There's a mouthful. Pray with me, would you? Father, Son, and Spirit, these moments, as alike with the moments we've shared prior, are clanging symbols without your love. So may your love permeate these moments as we look into your word, as we ask you, Spirit, what you would have for us to take from it to shape us this day. So in the words of King David, teach us your way, O Lord, that we might walk in your truth. In Christ's name, amen. 
if you've ever looked online for the perfect chocolate chip recipe, I've done a lot, a lot of times. Uh, there's about 78,000 different links to, you know, 79,000 different websites. And uh, one of the things that fascinates me is you've got chocolate chip cookies. I mean, there's a fair amount of ingredients, but like not a ton. And yet the list and the order of operations to make what they would describe as the perfect chocolate chip cookie is a bit daunting. It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And then in any of these recipes, at some point in the process of giving you that recipe, it will say, and whatever you do, don't skip this, right? Some will say it's about the butter and cream and sugar, and others will say it's about sifting the flour, and others still will say it's about this, that, or the other. I think one of our, one of our greater temptations or, or one of the higher risks for us as a family, as we dive into the book of James over the next six weeks, is to take all of these instructions and be so overwhelmed by all of them that we just start skipping steps. I think that's the temptation in life too, sometimes, right? We grab a hold of what we feel like we can live out in our faith and we end up skipping steps along the way. And when we pull our faith out of the oven, we find it's flat or it's overdone or underdone. James zeroes in right out the gate in these early verses by creating a bit of a sandwich, if you will. Now, there's a lot going on here, and so I'm only going to kind of pull on one thread in this beautiful tapestry. Forgive me if I pull on the thread you didn't want pulled on, but um, I guess you'll have to endure me. Uh, one of the threads that he pulls on is created by this sandwich of sorts that begins in Verse 4, where he says, when your endurance is fully developed. He begins by reminding us. Another translation, the one I grew up on, says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when any trial or temptation you face. And the sandwich is kind of closed off at the end, or, or at least this section is closed off at the end with verse 12, where it says, patiently endure testing and temptation. We have this picture of endurance that's creating this sandwich. And I think what's in the middle is maybe where we would wisely focus this day. Because what's sandwiched in the middle has sparked my attention throughout the last couple of weeks. This idea of our fully matured faith and these hundred seemingly disconnected steps along the way that lead us to a fully developed and mature faith. All of these details that are designed to work together. You see, our faith is, is more than merely a list of things that we believe or a list of tasks that we complete, right? Those things that we believe about Christ, about God and his relationship with Israel and his deliverance of us in Christ. These things we believe and we hold them dear, yes, but it's more than merely these things that we believe. And it's certainly more than merely the things that we do. We, we read the Bible. We avert our eyes from sin. We focus on what is good and pure and true. And, and these are good and wonderful things to do. But it's also more than merely the things that we do, right? We get this kind of rapid fire thing going on in this sandwich that he does. I'm going to go through these really, really quick. For those of you who taking notes has have helped to you, um, 
grab the QR code behind me because they're all in the digital program, um, if that's of help to you. First, in these early verses, verses 5 through 8, we get the picture of a divided loyalty and how it destroys. And it's juxtapositioned against this idea that with the confidence in God's wisdom, faith can endure. So on kind of one side of this seesaw of life, not just the things we believe or the things that we do, but, but hanging in the balance of all that is this reality that a divided loyalty will destroy us, but confidence in God's wisdom will help our faith endure. Notice I use the word confidence and not certainty. I think that's pretty important. Those C words are very different and very, very valuable. tossed around by the wind and the waves. Jesus had some things to say about this as well. In the later verses, verses 9 through 11, we get this next picture that wealth will fade away, but humility, with humility, faith can endure. Right? So this idea that the, the pursuit of life is not to be poor so we'll be honored or be wealthy so we'll be humbled. The, the goal of life is for our faith to endure no matter what. That if we are poor, there is honor in that, and that when we are wealthy, there's humility in that. And that with humility, our faith can endure. And if we view it properly, we recognize that our, our wealth will fade away. Like grass withers, it'll wither. It may be too soon, but uh, anybody buy a bunch of crypto? How'd it go? I don't really actually know, but I think that for a while it was like not great news. Some of you are looking at me with murderous eyes. So I'm guessing my instinct was right there, right? That it isn't great. And, and then in the latter verses of sort of this endurance sandwich, if you will, verses 12 through 15, we get this picture that temptation can drag us away, but there's a blessing that awaits for those who patiently endure. There's a blessing that awaits. And so to simplify this little movement that James begins with in chapter 1, we're reminded that we need a faithful endurance to navigate this life with great joy. Remember what he opens with, right? Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And then, as we saw just in those later verses, as we just looked, he goes on, and really to make it extraordinarily simple for us, maybe it'll capture your mind like it has mine, you, you kind of run through these three areas where endurance will be so key to us. You have loyalty, you have wealth, and you have temptation. Now, for those who've done some work in the true self, false self arena, these you may find help you correlate. If not, don't use it. It's fine. But the idea is these things correlate to our faith enduring. When it comes to my loyalty to God, is my faith enduring? When it comes to my wealth, is my faith enduring? When it comes to temptation, is my faith enduring? And where in these kind of arenas of where life is actually lived, do I need to give focus? 
Where in the details of life would my soul benefit from a little extra attention to detail? And I can't speak that for you. I, maybe for you, you sit down to pay the bills once or twice a month, and in those moments, you feel the anxiety bubble up, and you go, there's never enough. There's never enough. Maybe for you, it's you're seeking out wisdom. You're going, God, what, what do I do here? I, I don't know what to do. And, and you lie awake at night going, I don't know how to raise this kid. I don't know how to deal with this spouse. I don't know. Well, I need your wisdom, God. And you're, you're raptured with worry or anxiety. Maybe for others, it's the temptation to that substance, that relationship, that desire to be loved or have power. Because in all of this, our faith's growth can be likened in some ways to that cookie metaphor, which will really, really quickly lose its steam. So I'm going to get off of it here real quick, I promise. But here's the reality. You can have all the ingredients to the perfect set of cookies, and you can have everything lined out, but if you pull out that butter and you let it get too warm and you mix it with sugar, I'm telling you, the cookies will come out flat, and you don't even have to taste them. You can pull them out of the oven and go, darn it, I ruined the cookies. There's 40 bucks up in smoke. I give them to the kids. They don't care, right? But you'll know. <laughs> or if you rush the dough and, and you're trying to get them in the oven too quick and you don't rest the dough and wrap it up and saran wrap and put it back in the fridge for an hour and let it chill out. I don't know what's happening in those moments. I don't get chemistry. I just know that if I rush it and I don't get these darn things back in the fridge, they're not going to have good texture. They're going to be weird, mealy, and gross. And then somebody's going to give you that cookie and go, oh, these are my great cookies. Aren't they great? And you're going to eat it and go, eh, you didn't rest your dough, did you? Right? You just know. It's like you can, if you cooked a bunch of cookies, you can pull them out of the oven and you can look at them and you just know. And I'm telling you, friends, you may not recognize it in the mirror because we tell ourselves what we want to believe, but it's known. The aspects of our faith that we are not paying attention to the details are impacting our life. Well, I'm just going to be more generous with my money and bolster my wealth area of my faith since I have such difficulty trusting the wisdom of God. So I'll just overcompensate here. Well, you can put all the chocolate chips you want in those cookies, but if they're flat, they're flat. You get the picture, right? The horse is good and dead, Stu. Quit beating it. See, the reality is, um, and I know, I know we all know this, but maybe as we enter a new year, it's just a helpful reminder that uh, our faith is not lived out in the classroom. Our faith is not made by just learning more stuff, by knowing more, by reading that next book. It can be helped. But that's not where our faith is lived out. Our faith is not lived out in the laboratory of experimentation. That can help. But that's not where our faith, and it's certainly not lived out in a Sunday worship service. That can help. But our faith is lived out in the cut and thrust of everyday life. In a boss who grinds at you. In a neighbor who constantly irritates you and makes all that noise above you and won't allow you to sleep. 
This is where life is lived out. It's, it's lived out in the details of a conversation where you, you feel the conversation going. I know I do, and you know I'm about to say this, that, and the other about so-and-so. I don't want to do that, and oh, here I go. But it's in slowing down that game film on our own life that we recognize, here's what's going on in my soul. We live out our Christianity in the worries of the night and the temptations of the day. And, and, and so, as promised, let me introduce a second metaphor because the first one has got to be exhausted by now. And it's found in a book and in a quote that uh, if you've been around any period of time, you've heard me read this a number of times. I look back over notes uh, to try to grab the text. Uh, even, even this morning, in fact, was looking for it and found it in about six different talks I've given over the years. So um, you, if it seems familiar, it is. It's going to be on screen if that helps you follow along. If, if rather, you'd rather just close your eyes and listen in, it's there. It's also in your program in the digital notes. But l- let me read this from Robert Barron. Christianity, like baseball, painting, and philosophy, is a world, a form of life. And like those other worlds, it is first approached because it is perceived as beautiful. A youngster walks onto the baseball diamond because he, or she for that matter, finds the game splendid. And a young artist begins to draw because she, or he for that matter, finds the artistic universe enchanting. Once the beauty of Christianity has seized its devotee, she will long to submit herself to it, entering into its rhythms, its institutions, its history, its drama, its visions and activities. And then, having practiced it, having worked it into her soul and flesh, she will know it. The movement, in short, is from the beautiful, it is splendid, to the good, I must play it, to the true, it is right. One of the mistakes that both liberals and conservatives make is to get this process precisely backward, arguing first about right and wrong. No kid will be drawn into the universe of baseball by hearing arguments over the infield fly rule or disputes about the quality of umpiring in the National League. He goes on to say, Christianity is a captivating and intellectually satisfying game, but the point is to play it. It is a beautiful and truthful way, but the point is to walk it. Which brings me to maybe a final question of sorts for the morning. What then shall I do to live out an enduring faith? Well, I might suggest we start with those three areas of endurance that James opens with. How's my loyalty to Jesus? How am I doing with my wealth? Where do I fall in the land of temptation? You see, because it's in these fields of play, if you will, where we're learning to love the game of Christianity. See, we, we often think about 
those particular things. Loyalty to God is a should. And we think about wealth as, oh, great, here comes the money talk. He's going to tell me I should tithe. And, and, and then we think about temptation as, oh, I'm such a horrible sinner. I should really do less of that. Maybe all those things are true, but the reality is if we start there, we never get on the field and live out the way of Jesus. Wonderful author with the most unfortunate name, uh, Phyllis Tickle, that is her real name, says, and this is going to aggravate a few of you, so just bear down, you know who you are. Uh, She says, the surest way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. What? We shouldn't sin. No, yeah, you're right, we we shouldn't sin. But this, this point is, is, if our mindset is always on what I ought not do, what I should avoid, getting all the stuff right, what happens is we never step into the batter's box and actually live out this life of faith. When I was a youth pastor all those years ago, I worked for this just awesome senior pastor who had been a youth pastor himself. And so he was um, uh, patient with me. Uh, word was chosen very carefully. And there were a few times where uh, he would come in. We had youth group on Wednesday nights. There was probably a few times where he came in on a Thursday morning and the whole church building, this very sacred space, um, smelled like popcorn. And there was probably some M&Ms ground into the coffee. And I know for a fact there were a hole, one particular hole in the wall that seemed to reappear about twice a year when a junior hire's head, very literally, would go through this one particular wall in a game or something. And we would all pack up and leave on a Wednesday night exhausted and, and also uh, satisfied with a beautiful evening. And he would walk in on Thursday morning, undoubtedly, and see the mess that we had created. But you know what he knew? He knew play had happened in here. Something had been happening in the field of play. You, you see, uh, Adam and Eve were not given a set of writings to study and master in the garden. Ever think about that? They were given creation to govern, as if to say, go live life. And they were given the presence of God, and they were told to stay near. It doesn't mean that God's words weren't true, and it doesn't mean that God's word, which was to come, wouldn't be of huge value to us. Of course it is. But first, Adam and Eve were given God's presence and a world to govern and told, live. Go live. And long before Moses went up that mountain to receive the tablets which contained the Ten Commandments, Long before those words came through Moses for Israel, they were first given a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to follow. Be with me, God said. Don't get ahead of me. Don't get behind me. Don't second guess me. I am your God and I am leading you. And during the ministry of Jesus, amidst religious leaders who had studied Torah fervently for eons. Jesus did not give a new text. Rather, he gave his disciples himself. So the word became human and made his home among us. 
John chapter 1 reminds us. He gave us himself. Be with me. And in Revelation chapter 21, when describing the new heavens and the new earth, which we sang a a bit of a tip of the hat to this morning in at least one song, we're given finally something to write down. Revelation 21 says this in verse 5, and thereafter, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Not students. Not Talmudim. My children. And so at the risk of being reductionistic, I, I leave you with this simple invitation to live the victorious faith and the enduring life that Jesus has designed us for. And yes, I think that's done with a hundred of little steps. The inverse, maybe, of death by a thousand cuts, it's life by a thousand steps. And may I reduce it down to this one simple thing that I think will help us focus. And forgive me if it sounds like your grandmother's words of wisdom that you didn't know what she meant by. Maybe I'm getting to that age. But it's simply this, to keep your eyes on Jesus. Not CNN. Not Fox News. Not your IRA. Not your kid's location. I mean, maybe a little bit your kid's location. But to keep your eyes on Jesus. For he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. To keep your eyes on Jesus. For he is the only one who can heal you. To keep your eyes on Jesus. For it is his life and his teaching that will lead us to the life abundant that Charmaine read of this morning. To keep your eyes on Jesus. For walking with him will keep you on the narrow path that leads to the Father. And finally, to keep your eyes on Jesus. For he is the one who is making all things new. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, for the glory of your name and because of the goodness of your life and your sacrifice and your victory. We say, would you use your beloved James to help us keep our eyes on Jesus? I can't help but think about James who some eight to 12 years after the death of Christ probably had been watching Jewish Christians follow you for those years and wanted to help them get it back on the rails. And he begins by reminding them of what it will be to have an enduring faith. So may our faith endure, God. May you see us to be people who are not shaken in our loyalties to your will and the way 
who don't take too much pride in our poverty or our richness, who don't bow to temptation in hopes of being fulfilled, but who find your presence, your person, your will, and your way to be more than enough to lead us into all abundance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.